Our first scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Old Testament, from the book of Judges. The book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 17, the story of Gideon. And I am reading from the Living Bible. Then the people of Israel began once again to worship other gods, and once again the Lord let their enemies harass them. This time it was by the people of Midian for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelis took to the mountains, living in caves and dens. When they planted their seed, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and other neighboring nations came and destroyed their crops and plundered the countryside as far away as Gaza, leaving nothing to eat and taking away all their sheep, oxen, and donkeys. These enemy hordes arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count and stayed until the land was completely stripped and devastated. So Israel was reduced to abject poverty because of the Midianites. Then at last, the people of Israel began to cry out to the Lord for help. However, the Lord's reply through the prophet he sent to them was this. The Lord God of Israel brought you out of slavery in Egypt and rescued you from the Egyptians from, and from all who were cruel to you, and drove out your enemies from before you and gave you their land. He told you that he is the Lord your God, and that you must not worship the gods of the Amorites who live around you on every side, but you have not listened to him. But one day the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the oak tree at Ophrah, on the farm of Joash the Abizite, Joash's son, Gideon, had been threshing wheat by hand in the bottom of a grape press, a pit where grapes were pressed to make wine, for he was hiding from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty soldier, the Lord is with you. Stranger, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors have told us about, such as when God brought them out of Egypt? Now the Lord has thrown us away and has let the Midianites completely ruin us. Then the Lord turned to him and said, I will make you strong. Go and save Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Gideon replied, Sir, how can I save Israel? My family is the poorest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least thought of in the entire family. Whereupon the Lord said to him, But I, Jehovah, will be with you, and you shall quickly destroy the Midianite hordes. Gideon replied, If it is really true that you are going to help me like that, then do some miracle to prove it. Prove that it is really Jehovah who is talking to me. May God the Holy Spirit, as he has inspired this word, may he also illumine our understanding of it. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, in the epistle to the Hebrews, where God's great hall of fame is outlined for us, Gideon and Barak and Samson are mentioned. And the phrase that occurs just before the mention of the name Gideon says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon. And I felt like that this morning when I was looking at our scripture lesson because it's a little long, but it's a narrative and it's very interesting. 
Let me read just about the first 15 verses of the second lesson for you, and then I'll tell you the story. I'm reading also from this uh, paraphrase called the Living Bible. Gideon and his army got an early start, and they went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them, down in the valley beside the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, There are too many of you. I can't let all of you fight the Midianites, for then the people of Israel will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Send home any of your men who are timid and frightened. So 22,000 of them left, and only 10,000 remained who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I'll show you which ones shall go with you and which ones shall not. So Gideon assembled them at the water, and there the Lord told him, Divide them into two groups decided by the way they drink. In group one will be all the men who cup the water in their hands to get it to their mouths and lap it like dogs. In group two will be those who kneel with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others drank with their mouth to the stream. I'll conquer the Midianites with these 300, the Lord told Gideon. Send all the others home. So after Gideon had collected all the clay jars and the trumpets they had among them, he sent them home, leaving only the 300 men with him. And during the night, with the Midianites camped in the valley just below, the Lord spoke to Gideon, Get up and take your troops and attack the Midianites, for I will cause you to defeat them. But if you're afraid... First go down to the camp alone, take along your servant if you like, listen to what they're saying down there, and you'll be greatly encouraged and be eager to attack. So he took his servant and he crept down through the darkness to the outposts of the enemy's camp. The vast armies of Midian, Amalek, and the other nations of the east were crowded across the valley like locusts, yes, like the sand upon the seashore. There were too many camels even to count. Gideon crept up to one of the tents just as a man inside had awakened from a nightmare and was telling his tent mate about it. I had this strange dream, he was saying. There was this huge loaf of barley bread that came tumbling down into our camp. It hit our tent and knocked it flat. The other soldier replied, Your dream can only mean one thing. Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israeli, is going to come and massacre all the allied forces of Midian. When Gideon heard the dream and the interpretation, all he could do was just stand there worshiping God. Then he returned to his men and shouted, Get up, for the Lord is going to use you to conquer all the vast armies of Midian. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. <clears throat> We live in a time when people are increasingly interested in the supernatural, that which is above nature. And one of the reasons for this is that people want guidance. This has been repeatedly pointed out as you search the newspapers and you see astrology columns. Last week I saw in a magazine an account of the fact that in the United States of America some $200 million a year is spent in efforts to find out 
guidance through mediums or witches or fortune tellers or through the occult or through astrology. Now God has for us guidance in his word. He has guidance for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that guidance is open to the humblest of people. We live in a time in which often those who are bold for Jesus Christ feel that they are pushed into a minority. And indeed in the world we are a minority. And often even in the church those who take seriously their discipleship are in a minority. I was thinking the other day of the word Christian. That the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And I wondered how many Christians today are really called disciples. Are we really disciples? Do we take this seriously? And does it make a difference in our attitude toward life, in our daily walk? When I spoke in behalf of the college in Florida, there were people who wanted to know whether all this was just a lot of words about a recommitment at the school or whether there was really a serious effort being made in this direction. One person told me, I'm tired of words. If you're serious about Jesus Christ, I'm interested. Well, here is a man by the name of Gideon. His people, the people of God, the Israelis, had disobeyed God, and God had permitted them to be broken apart. If America turns its back on its great heritage, and indulges itself in rampant immorality, and in the worship of false gods, as I think sometimes we're doing, then God may very well allow us to be disciplined by a nation that does not know it. And so Amalek and the Midianites, the marauders, have set to work. And for some seven years, the people of God have now been under the cruelest of oppression. They are so enfeebled that they have left their homes and have sought places of shelter in caves and in dens of the earth. They're afraid to thrash their wheat out where they can be seen, lest the marauding bandits come down upon them and take away their harvest. And so this scene opens with Gideon. Gideon down inside a pit, thrashing a little wheat, afraid to be seen lest someone come and take it away from him. I used to work on a farm, and you think about a lot of things when you're chopping cotton or corn. And I think that when Gideon was down there in the pit beating on this wheat, he thought, boy, we are really in a mess in this country. Here I am down in this pit. Thrashing wheat because I'm afraid to be out there. I'm afraid because the Midianites are out there. I'm afraid because the Amalekites will come down. I'm just scared. We really are in a mess. Our fathers used to tell us about how God had delivered us before. But I wonder whether God could do anything with us now. All of his brothers had been killed in valiant efforts to overthrow the oppression that had been put upon them by Midian. And then suddenly an angel from God appears, a manifestation of God himself. And Gideon is terrified and frightened. And you know, when you come close to God, the first thing that happens are 
is that you're afraid. You're afraid of a manifestation of God because it means that you're going to lose your authority over yourself. And you're going to submit it to him. That's why people go to the occult. They think they can manipulate the occult. But they will not go for guidance because that means they'll have to follow God's way. And so here, Gideon is presented with the appearance of one from God and he is afraid. And the word that the angel from the Lord speaks to Gideon is full of divine irony. He says, mighty soldier, the Lord is with you. Here's Gideon hiding down in the wine vat. Mighty soldier, the Lord is with you. Gideon said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> mighty soldier, here I am down in this vat scared to death of the Midianites and you call me a mighty soldier. That's, that's about the exact way in which this thing is taking place. And then Gideon hears, but he can't believe his ears, he hears God say to him, you are going to deliver your people from the hand of Midian. And Gideon says, who, me? Do you know who I am, angel? He said, I am from the poorest little old tribe in all of the Israeli group. Not only that, but I'm the poorest of all my father's sons. Now, you know, when you read in the book of Judges, when you read Joshua, you have a powerful figure in Joshua. Boy, Joshua was decisive. And here God takes this little nothing whose name is Gideon and how God is going to work through this little nothing's life when he yields himself to God. Let me continue the story. Gideon, of course, wants a sign, and God gives him a sign, a sign that his power is with him. And then after this, God tells Gideon that the revival that he wants in the land needs to start in his own house. There are a lot of people who want a revival in their neighbor's house. There are a lot of husbands who want their wives to become wonderful, true, good Christians. And a lot of wives who want their husbands to become wonderful, true, good Christians. A lot of children who want their parents to be that way, and a lot of parents who want their children to be that way. But a true revival always begins with you. And it begins in your own home. And so this is what happens with Gideon. God says, look out of this pit, Gideon. Do you see those poles over there? Do you know what that is? That's the cult worship of pornography and filth that's been brought in by Baal. You see that grove? You know what goes on in that grove? Okay, Gideon. Go out there and cut the grove down. Cut it down. And take the wood from it and build a fire and make a sacrifice to the God of Israel. Gideon is a little timid about it. He goes out in the middle of the night. He takes ten servants with him, and he, but he does cut down the grove to Baal, the sex maniac God. He cuts it all the way down, and he uses it for firewood and burns it and makes a sacrifice. 
and the sacrifices to God. And the next morning, there's a lot of talk in the neighborhood. Here come all of the Israelis who have defected from God up to Gideon's father's house. And they said, you know that boy of yours been acting a little strange lately. And you know what happened last night? I want you to come and look what's happened. Someone cut the grove down. Someone tore down Baal. And the father, who is made ashamed because of the faith of his own son, said, well, maybe he's right. If Baal is such a hot God, why can't he defend himself? And he speaks it. And uh, he bought, brought some faith in, into his own family this way. And then an interesting thing begins to take place. The people begin to consider that maybe they have wandered away from God. Maybe they have wandered away from God in the church. And they start praying and they start thinking. And then enthusiasm begins to be generated. And an interesting verse, verse 34 of chapter 6, tells us that the Spirit of God clothes Gideon. And great things can take place then. Great things can take place then. This past week, I, someone mailed me a copy of Christian Life magazine. They had marked an article for me to read. You know what the article was about? I suppose everyone here saw the motion picture film, The Sound of Music. You remember Maria? Maria, who was in the convent and who was assigned by the mother superior to go to Baron von Trapp's family and to be the governess for these children because their mother had died. And you remember that vibrant, buoyant person with her simple faith and the romance and the adventure that comes through that perfectly wonderful film which makes you feel so good when you go and see it. I think I've seen it about five times. And in a day when we're told that nothing but sex and violence will sell here, this film broke all the records. Well, anyway, little Maria in real life has gone through a tremendous conversion experience. Maria said that she had taken for granted that she was a Christian. But when she was reading the scriptures, she came across a passage that said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open the door and let me come in, I will come in and sup with him, eat with him. And Maria said, I was challenged by this verse because I wondered whether I had really ever consciously, knowingly, honestly let Jesus Christ come in and take over my life. And so she did. Now she is a loyal and devout Roman Catholic, and still is. And she has had a tremendous effect in her own denomination, in her witness for Jesus Christ. Maria said that she was terribly frightened to give her testimony about her experience and she was invited by a priest to come to a big Roman Catholic church in Rhode Island. She went there because her grandchildren were in that town and she got there, she came to the church 
and she found out that it was to be at a Sunday morning mass. And this is such a tremendous break from tradition that she was horrified. And she called her bishop to ask whether this was the right thing to do, and the bishop was sick and she couldn't speak to him. She asked the man who answered the telephone whether it would be all right, and he said, my, in my opinion, no. And she said, well, I'm glad you said that because I'm going to tell him no. You will forbid it, won't you? And the man said, no, I don't have the authority to forbid it. So Maria didn't know what to do. She went back to the priest and she said, you ask your bishop if he wouldn't forbid my speaking this morning and, and giving my witness at Matt. And her priest said, I can't. He died two weeks ago. <laughs> so there was nothing to do. But at the appropriate time, Maria, with her newfound faith in Jesus Christ, stood up to speak. And she said that when she stood up to speak, that she didn't know what else to pray, so she just said, Holy Spirit, these lips are yours. You speak. And she said, I heard the most wonderful sermon. <laughs> she, said, yeah, she said, when I finished, she said, when it was finished, she said, to the bewilderment of everyone present, they broke out in applause in a Roman Catholic church. When a woman is telling about her faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in her life, and she said she applauded too. <laughs> and then she looked at her hands and saw that she was applauding and hid them down behind the, the, the pulpit. Well, this is what happens when a humble person is willing to give herself to the Lord in Maria. And there'll be a brand new book coming out in the fall that you can get and read about Maria von Trapp, the Baroness, and about her faith in Jesus Christ and how God is revolutionizing her life. God has used other men, other men who had been repeated failures, at this time of the year, I always like to tell about my great American hero, Abraham Lincoln. Abe Lincoln went to the Black Hawk War as a captain. And through no fault of his own, he came back a private. They just liquidated his company. That brought an end to his military career. He opened up a little store back in his home village. And in Lincoln's quaint way of putting it, it just winked out which meant that he was a failure in business. He went into Springfield, Illinois, to be a lawyer, but he was considered too idealistic, too impractical, too uncultured to ever be a successful lawyer in Springfield. He turned to politics, and he was defeated first in his campaign for the legislature. He finally made it to Congress, but was defeated when he tried to get reelected. He was defeated in his application to be a land commissioner. He was defeated in the senatorial election of 1854. He was defeated in his aspirations for the vice presidency in 1856. He was defeated in the senatorial election of 1858. Now, if he had been living today, the pollsters would have said, forget it. You'll never make it. But in 1861, as a dark horse candidate that no one even thought about, he became president of the United States. No president ever made the record that Abraham Lincoln has made, nor the impression on the world and history that Abe Lincoln has made. Tremendous things can happen. Well, this man, Gideon, 
cut down the altar to Baal and saw a revival take place and the word began to get out that a leader was about to surface. And so he sent out word that he wanted everyone who would be interested in getting rid of the Midians to meet him. 32,000 people came together, 32,000 men. And I expect that when Gideon looked over that 32,000, he thought, man, God, we are in business. 32,000. Now, Midian has got 120,000, but with 32,000, I think we can operate on them. And God said, that's exactly what I thought you'd think. So we're not going to do it your way. Make a speech to them, a tremendous speech. And right at the end of your speech, say, everyone that is afraid, get up and go home. He made his speech, and he got to the punchline, and he said, everyone who's afraid, get up and go home. 22,000 left. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be great if you did that in the church today? Million-member church. Everyone who doesn't mean business with a God, leave it. You'd have more than 22,000. They got up and left. They went home. He was left with 10,000 people. Well, he looked at it, and he thought 10,000. And Midian got 120,000. What am I going to do? God said, you're going to get rid of some more of these. <laughs> and Gideon said, some more? 22,000 are already gone. Do you realize that they got 120,000 people camped down in that valley? The Lord said, yeah. Now then, take them down to the spring. Let me watch them drink. I'll tell you what group one and group two are going to do. And then he watched them drink. I don't know how to interpret that passage of Scripture. It's very hard to tell exactly what's meant by it. There are some people who say that they scooped up water in their hands and they drank from their hands so that they could look and be alert. And other commentators say that, that uh, what happened was that the Lord took the 300 who lapped water like dogs because they were cowards just to prove that he could do it with 300 cowards. Uh, so I don't know how to interpret it. You figure it out yourself. Anyway, he got 300. 9,700 of the 10,000 went home. And Gideon looked at the 300. And he thought about all the guidance he had gotten, and he wondered about that guidance, and he wondered whether it was really true or not. And you know, when we pray for guidance from God and we get it, we often wonder whether we're really getting the right message or not, especially when it doesn't coincide with what we want to do. I had a friend out in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Frank Barker, who teaches a Bible class to a group of, of uh, very impressive business people who take God seriously and want to understand the Bible and and so some of them were growing in discipleship, and one was an executive with the General Electric Corporation, and, and uh, he was feeling that he was being impelled toward the ministry, and uh, he went home and he told his wife, he said, you know, the more I think about it, I think God is calling me to be a minister, but I'm, I'm trying to put it out of my mind, because I think of all the good that I can do as a layman. And she, she's, he said, tonight when we kneel and pray, I want us to pray that God will give me a sign so that I'll know for sure whether I'm to be a, going to the seminary or, or not. And uh, he's, he said they knelt and they prayed. He's a big executive with GE. Next morning he went to his work and he got fired. 
<laughs> That's a pretty good sign. <laughs> and he said he, he came back home and he told his wife, he said, I asked for a sign. And he said, I got fired today. And she said, well, that isn't what the Lord meant. Surely he wouldn't lead you that way. And he said, you know, I thought the same thing. <laughs> and then he asked for some more signs. Well, we don't need to do that. The greatest sign you need to do is to obey. And we get in the greatest amount of trouble when we don't obey. One of the greatest preachers of guidance is a man by the name of Bob Mumford, whose tapes I've heard a number of times and, and are very helpful. And Bob Mumford says that a Christian really leaves himself open for the devil to work in him when he starts operating outside of the scriptures and seeking signs and signs and signs and signs, too many signs, when he's not obeying. And he says the way in which we grow in the Christian faith is by obedience, by plain obedience to God and to his will. God will not lead you contrary to the Ten Commandments. God will not lead you contrary to the teachings of Jesus nor the apostles. He will not lead you into evil. This is what's so wrong with some of the pronouncements that come out in the permissive morality group. You don't pray about certain things because you don't need to pray about them. You don't pray whether you break the seventh commandment and commit adultery. You know you're not supposed to commit adultery. It's blasphemy to pray about it. It's a sin to pray about it. You don't study the Bible to find an excuse for it. If you do, you leave yourself open to be led into the worship of the devil. And that's why all this revival of the occult and Satan worship. I saw a little girl one time who had taken cigarettes and burned her hands because she said she worshipped Satan. She worshipped Satan. There's a big revival of this. You know why? People in the church really haven't been preaching dedication and discipleship and guidance from God. And the kids have picked up on it. And they're getting their, their cue from the devil. You don't pray about certain things. When you know what's right, go ahead and do it. Promptly, John Calvin, and you can't get any more Presbyterian than John Calvin. John, John Calvin's official sign was an was a open hand like this with a heart in it with flames coming up on either side. And underneath it were the words, I offer you my heart promptly and sincerely. I offer you my heart promptly and sincerely. Do not let the devil lure you into the trap of praying and searching the scriptures to find an excuse to evade your responsibility to God. Well, after this, Gideon, of course, takes his 300, and the first little illustration of psychological warfare takes place here. Gideon looks down that night, down at all those campfires and those tents and there's so many camels, there wasn't any way to even estimate them. And he looked at that group, and the Lord loves Gideon. And Gideon, the reason we can identify with him is that he is like Peter in the New Testament. He's so human. And if you saw Peter Ustinov last uh, spring in that uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame presentation of Gideon, you saw a very realistic Gideon. Uh, Gideon wasn't quite the hero type. And he looked down there and he saw all those tents. And the Lord said, you feel a little shaky, don't you, Gideon? He said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, take your servant with you. 
and, and creep down there, go on a little reconnaissance, little night patrol, and creep up next to the tents and listen. So Gideon sneaked down there, and he got close, and he got up close to a tent. And some guy was just waking up from a nightmare. And he told his buddy about it, and Gideon was listening, and he heard what he said. He said, man, I had this weird dream. And he said, I dreamed that there was a huge barley cake. Barley was the commonest cereal. It was the, the food of the poor people. I saw this enormous barley cake, and it came rolling down the hill, and it hit our tent, and it flattened it. And the other one said, you, know, you want to know what that dream means? He said, that's Gideon. He said, I've been hearing that name, Gideon, Gideon, Gideon. He said, he's out there somewhere. And he said, that means we are in big trouble. And so, <laughs> so there was a lot of psychology in this thing. They were afraid. And, and uh, they were spooked by the power of God. And uh, Gideon heard that, and that was music in his ears. And he went back up to his troops, and he said, boys, this is what we're going to do. He said, we're going to take a torch, and to keep it from going out, we're going to put a big clay jar over it. And you've got a sword that's going to be in your belt, and you've got also a horn that you're going to blast with, a tremendous shout. And we're going to get together, and we'll surround it on three sides, and you do as I do. Watch me. And what I do, you do. That's a tremendous thing to call upon somebody. Watch me and what I do, you do. But that's what he said. Paul said to people, follow the example that I'm giving you. We need to, follow, we need to give examples that we can courageously ask other people to follow. Well, Gideon did that. He put them all around. All around the tents of the Midianites. And then at a given signal, you know what occurred. There was that tremendous crash of pottery. Now, you know, back in those days, they didn't have any factories producing plates. And I know around our house, when a plate drops and hits the floor, everyone jumps because they cost a lot of money. And we think you go in a restaurant and someone knocks over one of those things where they stack the dishes or over in the cafeteria, someone knocks them, everyone jumps instantly. Because inside us, we've been conditioned to think about the fact that they're breakable and they're expensive. And so pottery was a lot more expensive and a lot more breakable to these people. And that, that noise, that tremendous crash, and then those torches suddenly getting the night wind flared up. And that light, and to all those people down in those tents, it was nothing less than the presence of Almighty God come upon them. And they jumped up in their confusion. And the Amalekites and, and the Midianites ran into each other and they started killing each other. And there was an enormous rout that took place. And this whole army was put to flight. They slew each other and Gideon pursued them. He, he fled after them. And there was a great victory which has been recorded for us here. And God can bring a victory to the dedicated who destroy Baal and evil worship and who are willing to be surrendered and expendable for him. He can bring a great victory. I wish I could say that this is the way the story ends. But you know, Gideon, after the great victory that you gain spiritually is the time in which you're most likely to fall and to be tempted in Gideon. And his human frailties really surface here.
An ephod is a, a garment to the glory of God, a, a something to his praise. And here they come with the spoil, with all the gold that they took off those people's earrings, and they took off their necklaces and their bracelets, and they took the stuff they had their camels decorated with, and they said, look, you can make an ephod with this thing. Be a good thing to do. And then Gideon got to looking at that ephod. And he thought, you know, God, I'd like to wear one of those. <laughs> and it becomes a snare to him. And they go back into their former sins again as they come out in his children. There's one phrase, breathe on me breath of God, we prayed a while ago. How am I to know the infilling of the Holy Spirit and his power? I think through a consistent life that honors and glorifies God. Corey Tin Boom, our old friend from Holland, who has spoken here several times. A little Catholic boy gave me this last week. Something's going on with the Catholics. And uh, Corey was asked how you could really be possessed by the Holy Spirit and have him guiding and moving in your life. What does it mean to be filled with his power? She told of a woman in Holland who started a little prayer meeting in her house. And her husband mocked at her and he said it won't do any good, no one will come. He came home from work the day in which she had had the prayer meeting and he said, how many came? She said the room was full. He was bewildered. A week went by. He came home again and he said, he had told her, he said, they won't come next week. But the next week he said to her, how many came this time? She said, the room was fuller. He said, now wait a minute. <laughs> you talk like an evangelist or something. The room was fuller. How could it be full last week and fuller this week? And she said, it's simple. I moved the furniture out of the room. <laughs> and more people could get in. Well, this is the secret here of Gideon. Move the evil out. And let more of God in. Move the unnecessary out. And let more of God in. Move out on the control of the flesh and let the Holy Spirit control and produce his fruits. Those, that love and joy and peace and that power and self-control that ought to be in the life of those who know and love Jesus Christ. Then we can see a victory and a revival come to our lives and to our homes and to our nation. And we need it desperately. Let us stand in prayer. <clears throat> o God, our Father, thou hast many lessons for us which we may learn from the pages of history and from the fellowship and worship of the church and from our contacts with one another and from prayer. But help us to know that it all boils down to simple faith, which is trust and obedience. And enable us by the Holy Spirit's power to trust 
and obey cause us to know that there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If persons are here who have never trusted in him and who have never obeyed him, will you lead by your Holy Spirit those persons today to open the door of their heart and consciously and deliberately ask Jesus to be Lord. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide be and abide with you all both now and forevermore.